Good evening. Twice, but I spent all day. Yeah. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the National Academy. I'm Carmen Brannigan. I'm the director here, and it gives me great, great pleasure to uh, welcome all of you on uh, the 10th anniversary of the partnership with Art Critical and the Review Panel. A very, very special thank you and congratulations to David Cohn, who is the force behind making this happen. Thank you, David, for being such a terrific partner. I'd also like to acknowledge the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs and the New York State Council on the Arts for their ongoing support for the review panel. And if you will kindly indulge me for just a moment, I would like to say just a few words about some of the things that are uh, coming up here at the National Academy. October 1st opens our fall exhibition, uh, which there's a postcard on your, on your chairs, called Beyond the Classical, Imagining the Ideal Across Time. This exhibition explores ways artists have referenced classical themes such as history, mythology, allegory, and idealism whether rejecting or responding to the classical, artists are conditioned and influenced by this framework. Drawing from the Academy's collection and showing such, such artists as Maxfield Parrish, Asher B. Duran, uh, Edwin Blashfield, along with loans from Marcel Duchamp, Anselm Kiefer, Robert Rauschenberg, Kiki Smith, and numerous others. I do hope that you'll come and have a look at that uh, exhibition either on the opening night, October 1st, or shortly thereafter. Um, along with this exhibition, we're launching a new and ongoing project here at the Academy on the fourth floor called uh, the Curatorial Lab. And in that lab, what we'll do is present the ongoing projects of living artists and architects, which gives the visitors an opportunity to explore these things kind of up close and personal. So there'll be a few works presented and then a lot of supporting materials such as videos, drawings, that kind of thing, which really helps people understand the creative impulse of these artists and architects. And we're opening that series uh, with uh, an exhibition called Gestures, uh, which are the designs of Wendell Castle and William Pedersen. I'm sure you're all familiar with the work of Wendell Castle. Uh, William Pedersen is um, an architect here in New York. He's actually the architect of record at Hudson Yards, an academician, and also has recently taken on uh, designing and making chairs. So his chairs will be on exhibition in the curatorial lab. Uh, a quick commentary on um, what is currently just beyond these doors, which I think it's important to note is the work of an academy student, because after all you are in the academy school. And uh, this is the work of an artist called uh, Wendy Noviardi, who is part of our full-time studio intensive. Um, and I think anyone that has a look at this work will agree that it's quite an excellent body of work for such a new artist. Um, so this is just one of the many new programs we have here. Um, I sincerely hope that you'll come back for lectures, maybe take a class, um, or uh, see the work that's in our, in our museum. But I think you'll also be interested to know that in the museum we're, we've instituted a new policy, uh, pay as you wish. So this is a way of expanding our audience, but at the same time, really finding out what the public thinks about what we're doing here. 
So all in all, I think it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful opportunity and we're really happy to open this fantastic season here at the National Academy. So without further ado, I'd like to turn this over to David and our esteemed panel. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed, Carmen, and thank, thank you especially for such a warm welcome, and it does feel incredible to be a decade, but it, uh, it, it, at the same time it feels like it was only yesterday that we were all upstairs in that marble room with uh, Ken Johnson and uh, Jerry Saltz on this panel and um, Alexi Wirth and Walter Robinson heckling from the floor and telling us we weren't doing a good enough job. So um, not that I'm encouraging you to do the same this evening. I think you'll find we'll be doing an excellent job, but if you do have, I hope you have things that you almost want to heckle with, just store them and share them in the the two sections, there's two sessions we have for uh, audience participation. Who's here at the review panel for the first time? Ah, quite a number of you, excellent, lovely, always fantastic to see new faces here at the Academy. And talking of new faces, I'd like to actually thank in person that the, the staff here at the Academy have been working close, closely with me to make this happen um, this evening. Uh, curator Diana Thompson and Michelle Kiefer and uh, a thank you also to Maurizio Pellegrin of the school for uh, making the review panel part of the new spirit of, of things here at the National Academy. Um, the format of the review panel is simplicity itself. We've all been hopefully to see four exhibitions around New York City. Um, I show a PowerPoint of those shows um, one at a time for the first two, they're rather image dense, and then the last two in one, one shot. After the videos, we discuss the exhibitions amongst ourselves on the panel. After the first two discussions, we open it up to, to hear what you, the audience, think of the first two exhibitions that we've looked at, and then we repeat the exercise. So that is the format of the panel. I should also, by the way, like to thank Isaac Durfel, who's the recording engineer, an important aspect of what happens here. It's incredibly wonderful to see a full house uh, for the opening night and, and indeed for all nights here at the, pan at the, at the uh, review panel. But it's also quite significant for us that the events are recorded for later podcast. Uh, the podcasts are archived at uh, artcritical.com, the online magazine that I publish and edit. And you can hear podcasts going right back to that first night in October 2004. So uh, now my great pleasure is to introduce this evening's guests. Uh, one, uh, a veteran of this series, um, and two, fresh faces um, on, on, this, on the panel. Uh, alphabetical order, and from your left to the right, um, Alexander Nagel is professor of art history at the uh, Institute of Fine Arts at New York University. He is both a Renaissance man and very much an art historian and critic with a, a foot in the contemporary. Uh, in fact, almost as if to uh, personify that split. His la latest book is titled Medieval Modern and looks at the phenomenon of um, the medieval and the Renaissance in 20th century and contemporary culture. Uh, he is the co-author with Christopher Wood of Anachronic Renaissance, 
and his first uh, book, uh, Art Historical Map, I think, is uh, of art. But we also see him uh, writing an essay in the cat current catalogue of Jeff Koons at the Whitney, and uh, he's written on Robert Smithson and uh, uh, any number of contemporary artists, uh, including Alexei Worth, who I just mentioned. Uh, Dorothy Spears is a veteran writer on the New York Times. Well, veteran is a writer on the New York Times of some standing. Uh, she, uh, we see uh, many of her uh, features and profiles of visual artists there at the Times, and uh, I was with some students looking through the bibliography of uh, Marcel Zama, and there was a rather illuminating, punchy interview from the Times in 2005, which is the year Dorothy joined that newspaper. She also writes personal essays in the Times, but has been a critic since the 1980s. She's also the editor of a book, uh, Flight Patterns, a century of stories about flying, to show that uh, art critics can have wings, literally and metaphorically. And Robert Storr, uh, first and foremost, the thing to say about Robert Storr is that he is a painter. And uh, he is dean of the School of Art at Yale. Uh, from 1990 to 2002, he was a curator at MoMA. Uh, the shows that he curated there are not only too numerous to list, but also too diverse to characterize. He's a, a Renaissance man himself. He's uh, been the critic for numerous art magazines throughout his years as a curator, uh, from Art in America to most recently uh, a column that ran through 2011 in Freeze magazine. And in 2007, he was the curator of the Venice Biennale. A distinguished panel, please welcome them. Wonderful. Well, I think we're ready now to get going uh, with, ah, the ball is in my court, but if we could dim the lights. And the order that we're re reviewing the shows, just to let you know, uh, is we're going to look at Alora and Caldazia first, then Marcel Zama, uh, Zama, Marcel Zama. We'll take, uh, we'll, I'm going to show the videos of each of those separately because they're rather visually dense. Um, and then after the discussion from the, the contributions from the floor, uh, our last two shows will be um, Angela Dufresne and Justine Kurland. Great. Great. We can have the light back. Thank you. So perhaps like the Met um, performances, at the Gladstone Gallery would, would benefit from surtitles or subtitles. Um, despite the cherubic voices, um, it's not always possible to pick up all of the nuance of what these uh, what trebles are, uh, what the trouble is with the trebles, as it were, with the, uh, what they have to sing. But uh, uh, we get, uh, I must say that when, when one's in the gallery, by the way, how many of you actually experienced one of the performances there in the gallery? That's, that's, that's cool, that's good, but uh, that's, a, that's a smallish percentage. I would, uh, hope, I would hope that as a result of whatever the verdict of this evening's discussion, there would be a stimulation to go and uh, check that out. Just out of curiosity, how many of you saw the show but didn't hear a performance? Right, right, yeah. That's a very different experience of this uh, enterprise than, um, um, than, than seeing the performance. Uh, uh, 
But there are lines that resonated. The, uh, the artists, the duo, um, culled insults and barbs from literature, going right back to Cicero, I think. And uh, lines that I heard and that resonated with me included, uh, uh, you have all the characteristics of a dog, except fidelity. And uh, you're a man with one idea, a bad idea, which is a, uh, an un unfortunate spin on the, uh, the dichotomy of the, the, the duality or the dichotomy of um, the fox and the hedgehog to be, have the, the worst of each. I mean, the worst of the hedgehog and the worst of the fox, as it were, to have no, only one idea, and, and it's not a good one. Um, ideas and realization. This is almost, isn't it, um, Alex? Could almost be, couldn't it, this show, um, the dilemmas of, of conceptual art as we know it, that, that, that you have um, really interesting things going on, but you need some program notes to, to connect them, would you say? Um, yeah, I, I think you need program notes for most art. Certainly you needed program notes for most art produced before a certain date, let's say 1800. But I would say all the way through, you probably needed program notes. And for this show, you don't need that many. Just a few indications about what's going on, and then you look and listen and make of it what you will. Um, so I, I don't think of it as its dilemmas as particular to conceptual art. I, I've never really understood what conceptual art is. I guess I should confess. Um, um, uh, most art to me uh, that's worthwhile has a conceptual dimension. I consider Michelangelo a highly conceptual artist. Um, so I, I, I never understood that distinction very well, although I know that people were very exercised about it around about 1970. Um, but, um, yeah, I think that's all I want to say about conceptual art. Yeah, but... don't worry about the conceptual art. Let's uh, okay. give us a characterization of Actually, just for those, because there's quite a swathe of the audience that hasn't experienced the show yeah. with or without the boy uh, soprano. So let's get um, from you, if we could, just a good, quick description of what are the components of right. the show and then a verdict from you as to how they come together. Okay, so, so I, I went twice to this show and both times I got time in the galleries uh, wandering around these blocks of marble um, that were um, rough on some edges, very smooth on other edges, that were um, joined almost. Uh, one imagines they were once together but have been cut very precisely at an angle. And the first thing I noticed about them was how uncannily artificial they looked. They really, one of them looks like marbled paper and no matter how close you get to it, it feels like marbled paper. Um, so they had a kind of unreal quality, and yet um, it's a blue chip gallery. These are famous artists, I guess, now. Um, one knows at some level that this is the real thing. These are, these are marble platforms or blocks. Um, and then uh, you notice people start gathering in the gallery because they know that something's supposed to happen at a certain hour, and um, two kids come in and take up position in and among the stones. I think you saw that pretty well in the video and in the photos. And they start singing. Uh, now, on the music, I feel very ill-equipped to judge 
what the music was like, but to amateur ears like mine, it sounded modern, but very much based in uh, traditional methods of uh, polyphony. And it, it seemed clear that what was happening inside the music was a kind of handling of dissonance with moments of harmony um, that had some relation to the content of what was being said. I'll also say or confess that I knew that there were insults being traded and that these were, as it were, borrowed insults from earlier times, uh, I guess up to recent times. Um, but I couldn't make many of them out. Um, and that seems important to the piece. Whatever assessment you make of the piece has to allow that a certain amount of sheer musical beauty is part of it, whether you understand the words or not. Um, so, so Dorothy, if I could ask you to um, characterize for us what, what the, the artist's intentions in terms of the fissures that they, the fissures and the breaks and the tensions that they, um, would like us to to experience between the with the with the with the voices with the stones, um, etc. Well, I I guess I find I mean, seeing these clips that you have here and the stills, I really felt that the piece looked much better here, <laughs> because there was nobody in the gallery in these pictures, and my experience of the show was on a crowded Saturday and. I couldn't see um, I couldn't see the kids really very well, and I felt um, sort of like a cow, <laughs> like being moved through the space, following these voices. I couldn't see them climbing, and these poses actually were striking, and it felt kind of like a cathedral. It sounded sort of like a sort of church sound in yeah. this here, and um, I felt like. The problem between the idea and the execution was very acute in my experience of the show, and um, I have a post-it, and I felt that there was so much rhetoric that accompanied the press release about, um, you know, that we're, hum you know, we're taking a piece of time out of these rocks, and you know, um, Alexis, my partner, and I went to the Grand Canyon um, earlier this year, and. I mean, seeing stones like that that are so old in their context was so moving to me that to think of an artist just thinking like, I'm going to take these out and put them in a gallery at much cost really irritated me. <laughs> okay, good. Let's get, good, get one's peeves on the table. Sorry, um, I did. <laughs> no, no, Just absolutely. in case I forgot. <laughs> yes, yes. But um, uh, uh, Rob, I... I I guess this is what I was alluding to in my first question to uh, Alex. It would have been better instead of clumsily saying conceptual art, which is a, is a, is a rather rudimentary shorthand for, um, for, for contemporary art where there is uh, an idea that seems to be autonomous of uh, the objects of its execution, uh, its elements, its formal elements, and that one needs some intellectual packaging in order to help bridge that gap, uh, which is certainly not a, a, a fair or flattering say, thing to say about the achievements of classical capital C conceptual art 60s and 70s, but just, I guess, just what one would have, would, would have been more elegant is just to say contemporary art where that's needed for that reason. But there, 
program is pretty fascinating. If you, if you can wade your way through the rather pretentiously critically theoretical press release, the actual, um, the actual ideas that, the, that Alora and Caldazia have regarding tensions in the rock, the voice that's about to break, the insults, um, are, they, are they rich or are they sophomoric? Where, where do you go with the ideas here? I think maybe hooey is the best word. Um, I have a whole category, it's very conceptualism, of which there's an enormous amount these days. Um, I think conceptualism is actually a, a very interesting and uh, vital genre of contemporary art ongoing. I think the best point of reference is still Solowitz's sentences and paragraphs on conceptual art. Uh, and the emphasis on the paragraphs is, excuse me, on the sentences is a rigor of execution, uh, which this lacked utterly. Um, I think it was borrowed and uh, ill-conceived. It was sort of slant step from Bruce Nauman, a little bit of Scott Burton, uh, a little bit of, uh, um, I'm just forgetting now, the person who did the Talus piece. Um, oh, yes, uh, Cardiff. John yeah, John Cardiff. A little bit of that, a little bit of this, a little bit. I also felt badly for the boys. I was a boy soprano when I was of an age. To have such a voice, I sang with the Chicago Lyric Opera and the Symphony, and I was amazed by the self-possession of these young guys, and I thought their uh, singing was very, very good. Their diction was terrible, uh, and the uh, singing of those complicated lines in a space where the echo by itself would defeat even the best singer means that basically you have to take everything on faith. And conceptual art cannot work on that basis. Uh, actually, it should not be necessary to caption anything this heavily as an art experience. And I don't disagree with uh, the statement about, uh, you know, ideas are part of art from a long time and you have to read and learn. But the primary experience of art should not be ga a game of bait and switch, which this basically was. Yeah, well, I, 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 I studied singing as a boy, a, uh, a young man, and I, I thought, yes, the, the diction was not, I wouldn't say that diction was terrible. I'd say that you are right about the acoustic, because I did, in person, manage to hear with one or two boys quite clearly what they were singing, but, but several were, were but, but look, I think it's also the music. Uh, but I do think, I would say it's rather lovely, whatever one's feelings about these artists and this project, I think it's, um, I think there's a big plus to be written for um, uh, somebody who's commissioning a piece of music for boys sopranos that's not ecclesiastical. And so I think uh, whatever else happens, a big cap in their, a feather in their cap for that to these artists. But, uh, but then again, yeah, there are some peeves. But Alex, you, you don't seem to have... There's, we haven't heard peeves from you yet. So um, well, I, did you I, find this a satisfying experience? Well, uh, peeves, hmm. I, I, I'm, I guess you won't hear many peeves from me tonight. I might be here under false pretenses. You don't have to peeve. I'm not, I'm not an art critic. I, I think I tried to write art criticism for a couple of years, about 20 years ago, uh, for Art News, and I was pretty bad at it, and I think they thought I was pretty bad at it, too. Um, and so I don't actually know how to do art criticism. There won't be, many, there won't be any verdicts for me. So I'll just confess that I go to contemporary art to have a, a, a sharp disjunction from the rest of my experience of life. And all four of these shows provided that in spades. And I go to it selfishly. I go to it to think with it. Whether or not those thoughts are in the work or germane to the work, I don't really care. And in this piece, what I was thinking about was boyhood. 
I was thinking about that particular juncture of boyhood that is the kind of fulcrum of this piece. I mean, one, whether you like it or not, that's what it is. Uh, how could I help uh, but think of it in those terms, given those boys there, and also given the fact that I had just seen the movie Boyhood, um, which made a big impact on me. Um, the last, the second time I saw this show, uh, I noticed both boys, there was a photo of one of them that showed this very well, were hunched. They were hunched, well, I'm pretty hunched right now, but they were much more hunched than I am normally when I'm not hunching over a microphone. And, and uh, in the movie Boyhood, right around that age, you'll notice there's a kind of hunted look um, about this kid who's trying to figure himself out and is getting told what to do all the time. Um, so it made me think of that. It made me think of a recent book by Niobe Way, a very well-documented book about boyhood and manhood, the kinds of friendships that occur between boys up to this threshold. This is exactly the threshold that she's talking about in her book. She shows that up to that age, the friendships among boys are intimate. Um, affectionate. A lot of affect is there. A lot of expression of love is there. And she documents quite abundantly, it's a very convincing book, uh, that after that point when they learn to be men, they become isolated from one another and, and uh, have a very different set of relations to other men and to the rest of the world. And so this piece showed the boys at that age as it were learning the lines of, it's a kind of proleptic piece, uh, learning these adult lines of vituperation and ridicule. Um, so whether or not that's an accurate interpretation of the piece, I couldn't help but think of it in those terms. Um, the, the fact about learning the lines, the disjunction between these kids and what, they were, what was coming out of their mouths, seems to me also very typical of that age. These are kids trying to figure out their own identities and trying on identities one after the other. So that seemed very natural. And, and if I wanted to really develop that view of the show, I would probably try to say something about the rocks looking artificial. But I'm not sure I would. Um, does that mean I like the show? I, I don't know. I, there are things about it, I guess, that irritated me. But if I'm able to think all those thoughts in the presence of that show, um, that's good enough for me. Yeah, to have that, that, to have that level of, of intellectual engagement is, is a sign of some, some degree of, considerable degree of success. Um, um, Dorothy, w were you able to transcend your peeves and have any, any fraction of the experiences that Alex was having there? Um, the voices of the boys, which I heard kind of over the heads of, I mean, without seeing them over the heads of people, I thought were very beautiful, and I... I um, you should have I, just jumped up on one of the rocks. There were plenty of vacant rocks. No, that you weren't allowed. Ah, oh, yeah, right. Because okay. I, I asked. Ah, um, uh, <laughs> um, I also, what else? I liked that they hired, I mean, in the case when I saw it, there were boys that were from nearby, and I thought that was kind of good that they didn't, like, f fly kids in from, you know... LA or wherever um, to sing these songs, but um, all the Vienna's boy choir. Yeah, the, yeah. So that was I liked a bigger that. budget then. Right, uh, because right. I don't know if the boys were paid. Actually, that's a good question. I did feel sorry for them, as Rob said a little bit, because it seemed so hard to even like to think of singing what they were singing, and then 
seeing like a sea of people that they have to somehow find their way to through to get to a rock in the other room. I guess it gave me a certain amount of anxiety <laughs> on their behalf, like thinking wow. of... I spoke to a father of one of the boys oh, and yeah. he said that uh, the kids were particularly delighted to be able to sing in their chosen clothes, the kind of clothes yes. they wear on the street, not have to wear those chalices and whatever, or those um, supplices, sorry, and the, their uh, flowing robes. Um, Rob, I'd like to challenge you on one thing you were saying, though, or one thing you were implying, and that is that because there are elements in this project that recalled for you other artists, for instance, the way the rocks are cut put you in mind of Scott Burton, or the fact that there is uh, polyphonic music being used put you in mind of Janet Cardiff, etc. Um, Jerry Saltz, in a review of this show, uh, uh, blasted him for being completely derivative of Tino Segal for the reason that in one quarter of Tino Segal's um, work called Progress, you're accompanied on the ramp of the Guggenheim by a boy of roughly the same age as the boys in this performance. This, this seems to me, um, you, obviously you're not here to defend Jerry, but just, <laughs> no. def just defending what you've said yourself, it seems to me actually a curious approach, because the formal elements that you're describing there, or the strategic elements, I mean, there are only a finite number of elements in the universe, so obviously sound is going to be used by more than one artist, stones are going to be used by more than one artist. I don't think any of the artists you mentioned there, Cardiff or um, uh, uh, Burton, uh, really relate to this project at all. Obviously, you know, the intelligent use of precedent, sometimes precedent absorbed without conscious absorption, is what makes traditions. And there can be and are traditions of contemporary and modern art. Um, but this is so self-conscious and it is so strategic. And everything I've seen of theirs is like this. The piece they did in Venice was awful. Um, and I just am tired of giving them the benefit of the doubt. I don't give them the benefit of the doubt. Um, I thought they had some marvelous uh, boy singers, although if you go to churches and synagogues around New York, you can actually hear people singing things you can read in the, in the litanies, uh, uh, rather in the uh, uh, liturgies, rather. Um, it, this just seemed very pretentious on the artist's part and a kind of misuse of the talents of some young, good musical artists. And, you know, and, and it became clearly a talking piece for the art world. It is not all that much a piece for the general public. So Alex made an interesting thing out of it. I wish I had had him with me. I wish we could have discussed this. Uh, I th think he is a kinder and more charitable person than I had become. Uh, but I still think it's bad art. <laughs> so. but, but I still think that, I mean, we all know about art that references other art. But I, I would question whether anybody would go in and maybe Scott Burton, I can see, like, 5%, but certainly not Janet Cardiff. I mean, why does Janet, Janet Cardiff doesn't have a monopoly on music? No. Uh, I don't think Scott Burton has a monopoly on shaped stone. I mean, um, I, I don't think that they are referencing Scott Burton, actually. I think you might remember, you might think of Scott Burton, but I don't think it's, it's not a quote in the way, for instance, but that... Academic that art of any period, sorry, academic art of any period is defined by the sort of easy referentiality, the familiarity, and the seeming to do something out of that common knowledge. And I see them as being purely academic conceptualists. That, that, that very well may be, but I, I don't think... For instance, in, in, in the show we're going to talk about next, uh, uh, Zama's making very, very explicit 
uh, is basing the work on, on, on reference. But the status of, for instance, the Joseph Boyce-like figure with the blanket over his head in Zama is not of the same category as your suggested link between their stone forms and Scott Burton's chairs. Would you accept that? No. No, he wouldn't. I think it's just a question of logic. It's not a question of opinion. I think it's a question of logic, that there, there's a different level of... Yours is a subjective response to uh, a, a shaping of a material, and Zama, what Zama's doing is making an iconographical overt reference. Alex, would you back me up on this distinction? On which point? On the point that... Um, that, that on the point that Alora and Calzia are not referencing um, uh, Scott Burton as explicit in the same in the same category of reference as Zama references uh, Boyce or Picard. Oh, yeah. Okay. So that, that's a really interesting and, and fa uh, fantastically complex question right now, because we uh, live in an era of retrospective art. All four of these shows have distinct moments of retrospection embedded in them. And um, uh, that means that we not only have lots of art that's looking to the past in one way or another, but we actually have different kinds of retrospection happening in the art. And I was trying on the way over here to think of a kind of scale by which we might measure the four shows. Again, not evaluatively, but simply analytically. Um, kinds, how many uh, sort of kinds of retrospection do we see in each of the shows? And there's no question that Zama has the most. He has retrospection at the level of motif. There are things that look Dadaist and look surrealist here. There are retrospections at the level of reference. Duchamp is actually one of the personages in the film. Uh, there's uh, retrospection at the level of text. There are quoted texts. There's retrospection at the level of technique or mode, silent film. That's a lot of different kinds of retrospection. Allure and Calzadilla have very little. Uh, they have the, the texts, which are excerpted from Cicero to Shakespeare and beyond, so I'm told. Um, and then they have this other level that I think you're referring to, which to me isn't retrospection. That is being in an art context. There's always going to be a kind of positioning in relation to other art that's being made and that has been made recently. That, that to me, is the space of art. Um, so I think that means I agree with you, David. Right. Okay. I, can I say can something? <laughs> I found myself thinking about Gilbert and George um, right. during this and underneath the arches. And This is the performance where they paint their faces gold and stand on a table and sing a music hall number. For yes, and, and because, you know, modern te technology, you can actually look on YouTube and um, see them singing this. And I was like, why did I feel so differently about... I had the opportunity of seeing the 15th anniversary at the Sanaben Gallery, which was... 1986, um, and I f felt a joy watching this, and even when they were interviewed about the piece, because it's been going on forever, really, um, they said something that struck me about this show, which is they said when they started making art in the late 60s, a lot of artists were falling in love with art, and we felt this was wrong and self-centered. We fell in love with the viewer. 
And as far as this show, I felt like, well, they aren't in love with the viewer here because it just depends on when you see the piece, what your experience is. You know, there's too much kind of left up to chance, I think. I'm not sure how much love I want from Gilbert and George, but yes, that's an interesting <laughs> point. Yeah. It just seemed that, you know, it was an, yeah, it was an interesting point for a performer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's a good perception. I think because we've already actually begun to uh, segue into our discussion on yeah. uh, Zama, I think it would be a good idea, and in fact, I'm just going to go there because... Yeah, uh, Alex's point about retrospectiveness as a hallmark of, of art right now. It, it really is, um, I don't know if I went of saying it's necessarily such a distinctive feature of art across the board, but one thing I have noticed in, internationally is a, a new genre almost, um, or, or a trope that, uh, across genres perhaps, um, where, where artists are really revisiting the early years of the historic avant-garde, not as artists, but almost as um, curators or as um, uh, documentarians of, of the experience. I'm thinking, for instance, at the last documenta, we, one could have seen Gerard Byrne, the Irish artist's uh, quite, quite engrossing and spectacular installation where he uh, had actors reenacting the conference on sex of the surrealists led by André Breton in a, uh, a, a pseudo-scientific conference in a hotel room um, where various surrealist poets and, and painters talked about sex. Um, or uh, a young guy, Tyson, um, who had a video in the last uh, Biennale uh, which uh, used as its footage uh, video going through the studio of André Breton. And there are other instances where, it's, it, where the artist is making work that visits the artifacts and the, or, or the um, or documentary, um, almost a sort of philological approach rather than an aesthetic approach to coming to terms with the history of early modernism, particularly Dada and Surrealism. And um, it's, one thinks also of Richard Hamilton reconstructing the, the large glass and so on and so forth. I, I wonder, um, I've been a big admirer for some time of uh, Zama's work. I really enjoy it. Um, but the, the level of um, his, 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 his relationship to history in this particular show, which is very dense and is very rich, is also kind of strange, um, not in the kind of surreal way that we sort of maybe like the strangeness of Zama, but instead, a, a maybe even a confusion of categories. Do you have any feelings on that, uh, Rob? I guess I'm uh, fated to be the killjoy tonight. Um, you know, I, I, I've, I've watched Zama's work for quite some time and have admired the talent that went into the, the drawings and so on and so forth, but I find the work terribly fussy and terribly self-conscious and terribly uh, eager to charm. I'm so eager to charm that it uncharms me. Uh, and the same way that he treats history. I mean, I know that stuff frontwards and backwards, and anybody who comes up in the world now knows it frontwards and backwards, and I have no problem with people referencing it, but there's a kind of gee whiz factor to the way he does it, which seems to me to undercut 
uh, what could be interesting. But we know, when you see that direct quotation from Picabia's painting with, with the, uh, the cow's head and so on, so it's like, okay. <laughs> you know, and then when when the, the 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 vests open and it becomes this huge vagina, and then uh, the the cow gives birth to uh, the male counterpart, I say oh, we're we're getting somewhere, right? But just think of what uh, Paul McCarthy could have done in half that time with half that fussiness. Yeah, but uh, very very different artists. Um... I know, but but Paul McCarthy is a really good artist. <laughs> um, they are artists who occupy different categories of what they want art to do and, and the means that they bring to it. Each within the, his own category uh, achieves a, a certain degree of quality. But that's... Um, that's where we disagree. Uh, what we need to do, it's a split operation to first of all work out what they're trying to do and what category they belong to and then decide how good they are either within their category or just good, period. I Can mean, I just, just protest yeah, that? Yeah. Actually, that's, that's way too even-handed. Really disagreeing about purposes and categories is something that one should do. One shouldn't simply grant somebody their category and say, well, they get, they get an A for effort in category B. At some point, you have to say somebody's vision is more demanding than somebody else's vision, whether or not both of them realize their vision. That's, that's nice, but just, just try applying the same logic to the Olympics. I mean, really, uh, you know, if you're a different age and you're running a different way, then you can say, this athlete is superb and this athlete is wasting his time. But you, you just sort, sort of need to get the rules of the game in your mind. Do you want to put Zama in the handicapped Olympics? Is that it? <laughs> um, well, that's to say that's, well, this is a panel of four, not two, but uh, I would say that um, actually that's simply to say that illustration is a handicap. And that would be like saying, um, like somebody who, somebody who can't stand um, ice skating, saying we're going to just put the ice skating in the Paralympics because I don't like it. Um, anyway. Um, Dorothy, the, the way in which Zama approaches art history is markedly different, isn't it, from the way he explores mythology or sexual impulse or, or even hist straight history or even literature. When, he, when he's illustrating Dante, he's joining a, a line of artists that goes right back to Botticelli that set out imaginatively to illustrate Dante. But where, it, where he um, explores the Duchamp, it seems that the, the relationship is a very different one. Do you agree with that? Um, I guess I can't answer that directly because I don't really think of it that way, but I, I, I've been following Marcel's work for a very long time. I mean, and I, I loved the drawings, you know, when he started making drawings. And I remember thinking back then, it was like 2000 or 1999 or whatever, and. I remember thinking, I, don't, I wonder where he's going to take this. And um, when he started to take it into three dimensions, I, the first show that he had where he, I think he had dioramas or something, I thought, oh, this is an epiphany, and he's moved on to the next level. But then again, it started to feel like he didn't necessarily know what he was doing with his material either. And I feel this more than ever with the Duchamp. So I guess I agree with you on that. Like I, I, I feel um, in terms of artifacts that this show, um, it's 
it feels to me like, well, especially since he has all these famous people that are always working with him, like Kim Gordon is the star of his film, and, you know, the catalog has Spike Jones interviews him, and um, uh, what's the name of the band that... Oh, yes, uh, Sonic Youth? No, 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 the band that d did the screenplay for her. Uh, Arcade Fire. Arcade Fire. He, you know, he's he's got his finger on the pulse, and... Um, when I interviewed him back in 2005, he had just moved here, and he was friends with Sarah Vowell, who um, is a friend of Dave Eggers, and I feel like his, his oeuvre has become like a networking triumph, and he has all of these big names helping him and in his productions, and um, it sort of got away from this beautiful like vision that he had with the drawings. Yes, the purity also of the days yeah. where he met with his friends in the Royal Art Lodge. Yes, and the Royal Art Lodge. They did that sort of decalcomania and got drunk all night and made drawings and yeah. put them in different suitcases. And as That's a, a different... art as like it's 60 degrees below zero in Winnipeg where the Art Lodge, where they were all meeting. And so art for them was like this thing that they, that kept them kind of alive. <laughs> And um, I don't know if that's so true anymore. Yeah, I can see what you're saying. I, 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 think it, it's, I, I think that what you're observing is something akin to what I'm observing, but uh, at an oblique angle, because what, what I'm feeling is the, the weird, why I'm talking about it as being sort of philological or documentary and, and therefore incongruous with the material, is I'm seeing a complete um, lack of um, affect connection between his way of dealing with Duchamp, Picabia, um, and even Boyce, and the, um, the kind of energy in the originators, the artists that he's looking at. It's almost as sharp, uh, it's almost as strange a contrast as, say, um, Alfred Leslie's paintings about Frank O'Hara, that the, the, the style and the, the heterosexuality of those paintings couldn't, felt sort of just weirdly incongruous with Frank O'Hara, and I'm feeling the same here, that the, uh, Marcel Duchamp would say, thank you very much for the blue and the red box, uh, Marcel, but um, this is not at the service of my mind, and this is not There's nothing me. really at stake, it seems. I mean, no one's arguing with him about his, the great artist that he's championing. It's also Madame <laughs> Tussaud's approach to uh, early modernism, Alex. Um, hmm. Well, I, I, I feel like all of the things that are being said about this work could also be said, and, and in fact have been said by some, about the work that I guess we all liked around 1995. I went to, I think it was his first show at Zwerner in 95 or 96, and there were those fun drawings. Um, but already with Royal Art Lodge, uh, okay, it's, it's maybe more endearing that they were... Um, you know, taking refuge from 60 degree below weather, but it was very much a network um, connected to what at that time were very cool bands in Canada. I think he did the cover for a Weaker Than's album. Um, and uh, the art always has seemed to me, even when he was, you know, in his early 20s, it always seemed to me a belated art, a, a, a very much an art made at a time of of a kind of a kind of detente, um, a kind of um, all, retrospective uh, sort of tendency also, and um, yeah, you, you weren't going to go to Marcel Zama for you know vigorous um, 
huge statement making. Now, one of the thoughts that I had going into this show was, um, this is what happens when you're an artist who gets picked up by a good gallery, but a small one uh, in the mid-90s in Soho, and then that gallery blows up and doesn't drop you, but keeps you, and you have to go, really almost inevitably, you have to go from making cute little small drawings to something that can fill Zwerner. Now, um, that might sound like a condemnation of the show, and I'm sure many people will feel that's exactly what's happening, and that's why the work is weak, um, or, or, or in, inflated and weak at the same time. Um, um, but I don't know. To me, that, that also is a very traditional situation. That's, that's uh, the situation of most Renaissance artists. If they got the bigger room, they got to paint the bigger room. That's the way it went. Um, and that's what he's done, in a sense. Um, He's definitely not Michelangelo, um, but it's, he's sort of like the shoegazing hipster Matthew Barney or something. Um, uh, I think there's still a lot of magic in what he's doing, and I would want to stand up for the positive experiences I had in this show. I think in particular the video that one can see that like forms a bridge between the blue and the red half with the... Uh, I thought that was mesmerizing, the, the dancers and the polka dots uh, on the multiple screens. Rob, was that uh, a good moment for you? Now you're actually just baiting me, aren't you? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I have no ill feelings towards Zama at all. I am just deeply underwhelmed. And I remember uh, I used to give a crit in a school where I used to teach and everybody was imitating Giacometti and Cezanne. And I said, you do no honor to the artists you admire by doing bad versions of their work. And I think this is true of things in the, in the data and conceptual range as well. I think ambitious art doesn't necessarily define itself by whether it's a big gallery or a small gallery or whatever, but although I think that's a point well taken, just generally whether he wants anything bad enough to make something really happen, it seems not. I, seem to be, I would say that um, the drawings on the wall were, are still superb. His hand is, um, his, he has an illustrational vision rather than an expressive vision. Um, but I do not think that's a problem anymore. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, that's, it's a, like, like the way we got over decoration in the 70s and stopped, stopped talking about it in decoration and illustration are the sort of the big taboos of high modernism that we're, we're right, we, we, we need to transcend if we haven't done so already. And I think uh, that's just his sport, as it were. And I think he's a superb... Uh, illustrator, but I... You, you, you and I agree on that point, and I think if you look at uh, a lot of Eastern European art, the Kabakovs being the prime example, something involved in illustration that then becomes environmental, that then becomes performative, and so on and so forth, has changed the way Americans think, or at least should think about that word. Mm -hmm. But but I just don't think he... Again, he's ambitious enough with what he's done. He's got talent galore, yeah. but I don't think he has a motivation that's that's clear or compelling enough. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to def defend it a little bit. I feel like if, if you like the drawings the, from 20 years ago and I, up until however many, other, many years ago, and I guess till now, since there are drawings that look a little bit like those drawings from before in the show now, it, it's hard to say that this other work is, is not in line with it. I feel like it really is in line with it. Um, the, the, we haven't talked a lot about the video. I think it was a video. Um, and I think it, 
it's worth talking about a little bit. It's almost impossible to give you a kind of plot for it. <laughs> I'll, venture, I'll venture one. Uh, Duchamp is the spawn of the devil, um, and that produces um, lots of confusion and lots of other art. That seems to me the kind of basic point of the allegory. Um, I read it a little bit um, biographically. I, I could Im imagine being Marcel Zama and becoming a kind of big artist in the 90s and being surrounded by a lot of work that's in the tradition of Duchamp in one way or another and being uh, accused by many critics uh, of being simply illustrative or decorative or cute or kind of out of touch with uh, a more um, hard-edged, um, more political art. Um, and in this show, I feel what he's saying is, well, Duchamp is stranger than that. Uh, he's stranger than the kind of institution critique reception has made him out to be. And I'm going to reclaim that strangeness a bit. And he's got some backing there in the, in the literature, literature about Duchamp's interest in the occult, uh, et cetera. And uh, so I hadn't seen that in art, that kind of that kind of position taken and that kind of reclamation being made. And I thought, well, you know, good on him for having done that. I think it's valid to a degree. I, yeah, that's an exciting, that's an exciting perspective because there's, there's, there's Duchamp, the, Duchamp is a figure like Karl Marx in a way, that there's a, there's a kind of um, religion built around him and an official, an orthodoxy is built around him. And then it's awfully surprising to find when you read a, a Calvin Tompkins or, or, or primary materials, that this is actually a really compelling personality with amazingly rich um, interests, which are way more diverse and, and touch on areas that have got nothing to do with the kind of uh, the interest in Duchamp of either minimal art or a, a conceptual or neoconceptual art. And so, in a way, that's like the Stalinist view of Duchamp, and then the 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 more kind of the, the way that one can sort of view Marx as being a romantic German of the 19th century, and then he suddenly becomes a figure there with Schubert rather than with Lenin. So I think Duchamp, yeah, he's got all this going on, the occult, the chess thing, and also the romantic thing. I mean, his, his obsession with women is, uh, uh, is, is, is rich, but I just, I'm not seeing, it's not that I want to see a strictly Duchampian view of Duchamp from Marcel Jama, but I'm saying actually that when when his hero, when his uh, you know prophet, as it were, was uh, Henry Darger, his hand was in harmony, in sync with uh, his mentor, and this new interest in 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 Duchamp and in Picabia and Boyce and other uh, whoever's, it doesn't. Um, he's not finding any kind of formal rapport with them. Well, I think the, the Boyce uh, moment is is very specific, I think. And that's an iconographic reference. It's referring to the performance Boyce did with the, oh God, now I'm going to forget, the Coyote. I the Coyote. And I love America and America loves me. Um, uh, I felt like that was, I mean, and this is so typical of the, for me of this moment, that wasn't just a reference to Boyce as a mentor or as a kind of influence in the way maybe he refers to Goya. I think Goya really is that for him. This was, I think this is the Boyce of the silence of Marcel Duchamp is overrated. Um, so it's Boyce in his capacity as a kind of critic of Duchamp um, and maybe pointing a different direction out of Duchamp. I, 
um, I, I give him credit for that. So Dorothy, could we actually see, could we potentially see uh, Zama take the same sort of term a Hollywood um, cineast? I mean, he has all the connections, <laughs> I think. I, I feel like I was trying to, I mean, I kind of did a certain amount of soul searching on this show because I, I'm trying to figure out at what point, you know, he, his work started to get away from me. And um, I guess I feel that it's hard to go, I'm, I have a, I take a practical view. So I, it's hard to go into the show and not think that he was encouraged to make objects because the little drawings, um, you know, they don't sell for as much as objects or films or whatever. So the objects probably cost more. And I, I feel like it would be interesting to see if Marcel Zama did a performance, a live performance, instead of a film. Like, I, to me, it felt like going to a party after it was over. Like, you know, you see that he has famous connections, but you aren't mingling with them. So you kind of feel like, well, the party's from six to eight, you know, Sounds and... Sounds a little like the Surrealists. <laughs> maybe, but that you give it a lot of credit, I have to say. Right. Well, I think it's a good moment. Thank you, Dorothy. It's a good moment to bring in our audience on the first two shows that we've seen. Um, let's start our discussion, as he's freshest in the mind from having just talked about him, with uh, Marcel Zama. So, um, uh, have, we, have we missed something with Zama? Where, 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 are, where are we with Zama? What's, uh, no need to ask questions. Um, much rather have just comments. So, uh, but, if, but if you do feel that there's something very specific to ask, then do so. Uh, and do wait for the mic, if you would. Thank you. Um, where was the rough edges? Uh, there's no um, feeling of like uh, Andy Warhol's art films. It's very slick. The editing's slick. All the frames are in focus and uh, exposed well. And you've lost... Um, that uh, homemade uh, 60s, oh, them watermelons, uh, you know, the old uh, edginess of an art film. Mm -hmm. okay. That's, it looks like a TV commercial. So I lost all the artistic co content in its slickness. Right. I didn't know slickness uh, was excluded, that uh, art that was slick didn't count as art. Um, it's, it's pretty lo-fi compared to something like Matthew Barney. Um, you know, the, there are characters in there wielding cameras inside the film, and the cameras are clearly made out of cardboard. Um, it's, it's pretty, um, I don't know, I, I, when compared to some uh, video art that you can see in Chelsea, it seemed to me pretty, um, pretty artisanal, obviously artisanal. W one thing I, I didn't like, and uh, here I'm going to be a critic, uh, it, it was the acting. I actually thought the acting was subpar. Uh, Kim Gordon... Uh, it depends which half you're in, don't you think? The, the, the female lead in the uh, blue half was way... Uh, the red half was way better than the blue half, the older woman. Much better actor, Kim Gordon. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It, uh, I just felt like um, there's a certain kind of emphatic quality in silent film uh, that that involves kind of um, you might say uh, less imitative acting. And so in some sense, bad acting since it's so overdone. But it's like she didn't. She just didn't get it right. And I felt like that did weaken the piece. Um, but I think though the uh, the, the 
the grainy quality one might like in underground movies of the 1960s had a lot to do with the technology being a bit retarded, and, and that's why it sort of goes in and out of focus. It's, it's sometimes, of course, Warhol loves misregistration and things like that, but most avant-garde film of, the, of that period, if we like the crappy homemade feeling, it's, it's, it's actually just because it's crappy and homemade. So, I mean, it would be actually a, a, a complete mannerism and an affectation for Jama to try to get some misfocus in when, you know, any kid can, with a video today can do a better job than that. I, I agree. I, yes, and I agree with you that um, it is mannered in that sense. It's, it's, it's moments of uh, what I'm calling the artisanal element are embedded inside a very refined conception. They're, they're very much willed, those moments. And in that sense, yeah, we're very far from the earlier material you were describing. And that's, that to me, is, that's the culture we're in. It's a very refined, very sophisticated culture. Let's take, um, yeah, please, more, more comments on, on Marcel Zama. Yes, yes. Um, Use the mic, please, because it's being recorded. Uh, super briefly about the first show. I didn't see it, um, but I can imagine that if I had gone into that gallery and seen the, the kids doing the show with the singing, I would have run out screaming and vomited on the curb. But if I had gone in and just seen the stones there uh, mm. without any of that stuff, I might have thought, that was kind of cool. Um, and then for the, the Zama, which I did see, um, I walked in, I said, wow, you know, there's a lot of detailed, complex work here, and it's not really my thing, but like Mrs. Storr said, I, I respect the skill. And then uh, I heard some gurgling behind the curtain, and that's where I uh, started to have fun, because I went in there and I said, oh, this is just really zany and silly, and uh, it looks like it came from the, um, you know, uh, CalArts sublevel in 1980 with a lot of money behind it, and it was just uh, a, a lot of fun and, and had a creepiness. And uh, if I had more time, I would have stayed longer. So um, while I respected the, the stuff in the front, just the fact that I got to go in and, and watch a, a goofy TV show was uh, was a hoot for me. Fantastic, great, thank you for sharing. Now, um, yeah, we're open to both then, Alora and Caldasia, or or Marcel Zama. Yeah, you're all bursting. I know you're being polite and, and you're thinking I shouldn't go first, but uh, yes, you can, please. Um, I just wanted to comment on the uh, acting role of the gallery in the Alora show. They uh, give their very valuable real estate for four or five weeks and I think have nothing to sell. My heart bleeds, yeah. <laughs> I think there's ten sculptures. I mean, Sorry. those rocks are ten sculptures. So I, I, I think that they are for sale. I don't. <laughs> the kids are extra. Yes, yes. Um, I kind of wanted to say the opposite, which is that um, I think it was kind of the gallery's fault that that show didn't go as well as it did for people because I went to see it. It was lovely. There were a few people. There were enough people to make it interesting. Um, I, maybe I was classically trained to sing, obviously not as a treble. But um, I heard most of the insults. I thought they were hysterical. I thought it was a lovely show. I thought it was really joyous. It made me super happy. The kids were happy. I just thought it was delightful. Um, and I thought it was way less self-referential and really arty and about art than the Zama show. 
which I found kind of like the story of O. Oh, right. Excellent. Uh, I was just one question for the panel. Um, do you think that the setting of the uh, Allura and Calzadilla show be, being in a gallery was kind of a, a, a deficit to it? And if it had been in, say, a cathedral or an auditorium, would that have, would that change of setting out of a commercial, you know, you know highly echoic space, this one which is, has more refined acoustics, would that have changed the perception of the work? I have a feeling it wouldn't for my co-panelists. <laughs> It would have changed not just the, the, the reception of the work, but also the conception of the work. It would have had a, a completely different um, meaning. And um, uh, I didn't think it was short of layers of meaning. I just felt it was short of degrees of cohesion. I'm, I'm loath to blame things on galleries in this case. And I don't see anything wrong with doing this kind of exhibition in a gallery. Um, I think artists are responsible for the mistakes that are in their work, and I think there are plentiful mistakes in this team's work, and I think they should like really reconsider how they go about what they're doing. I wish them the best, right? But I've seen a couple of things that were personally very unconvincing, unsatisfying, and quite pretentious, and I think maybe it's time to shift gears. Uh, Karen, towards the front, there's a lady. Um, I saw the first show with the gallery totally empty and saw all the different colors of the stones against each other, which I thought was actually rather beautiful. What I didn't understand, because I ended up speaking to the gallery person, each of those stones was from, from, was from a different place in the world. And that wasn't labeled, and it didn't seem to be used, and I wondered what the significance was to go through the effort to have each of those stones from a different place in the world, and yet it didn't seem to be referenced at all in the piece. I think you have to wade through the press release. It has something to do with them being at uh, fault lines around the world between different uh, seismics or shifts of uh, planes or, or planks, whatever they're called in geology. There's, um, uh, so it has to do with, uh, that's why it then relates conceptually to the boys uh, trading insults with each other and their voices being about to break. So I'm sorry you didn't pick all that up because it should have been deeply there and embedded in the, the meaning and value of this work. Uh, uh, but obviously the press release was that vital missing link. But again, that's part of the artist's production of it. It isn't just the galleries. If, if, if this information is pertinent, then people should have it. And there's oceans of, of uh, conceptual art, which is heavily captioned. People fault it for being didactic, but it's useful information. It means that people can come in, enter into the experience, think about it, and then, you know, go from there. Right. It's uh, coy, basically. Coy. To his coy mistress. Let's, let's move on now, with coy mistresses in mind, to Angela Dufresne. Um, oh, I left the pointer behind, and I... She don't. Right, excellent. Leave you with the uh, flyer for the next panel. Um, so, two two shows by women who explore gender uh, in various permutations in work of quite strikingly different uh, affect. Um, it's interesting to have Dufresne following on from uh, Zama because of the, um, 
the fact that you've got an artist in Zama, um, almost a sort of Renaissance man, that's come up three times this evening, um, a Renaissance man going from sculpture to animation to video to uh, illustration, and the, the incredible decisiveness in Zama, just one last thing on Zama, when you've got those very large pages and the, 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 the decisiveness of placing what he places where he does and it, it just as a technical um, way of executing, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty, pretty stunning. Now, then we go to, to Dufresne, a pure painter, right? Uh, the, the, this uh, discovery of the image through the paint, this feeling that, that even if there is some quote-unquote illustrative or some, some, desi some design behind uh, uh, some, her intentions, we get the feeling, don't we, that it's the actual manipulation of material on the brush that arrives at, at the image. Um, and um, the narratives are richly ambiguous, aren't they? Dorothy, what did you make of Angela Dufresne? Well, these last two shows, but should we talk about them one at a time? Uh, yes, let's look. Okay. Let's, let's All right, look. so Angela Dufresne, I was, I was actually relieved because I saw the other two shouldn't surprised by this work. I, I, um, I thought there was a magic to it and the devilish look in the, well, you don't have any images up anymore, but in the eyes of all of the figures. I mean, it's like she does these quick, um, brushes, even wide brushes, and somehow can create a form while she's doing this. It seems, I mean, I, the way the forms materialized was um, really amazing to I, I felt like in this show, as opposed to the other two, um, that she was, that it was exactly what it said it was. You know, it's a painting show, and you don't need a press release, and you just go and enjoy, like, her interaction with the paint and her kind of crafty and devilish imagination. Yeah. Do, do you, what, what do you think, uh, Rob, of, of what Dorothy's saying there? Um, I can understand what she says. This is not an artist I knew. Uh, I could admire some of the technique, although I began to suspect it was a treatment more than a real technique. Um, and uh, I thought, that, in other words, that she had a way of surfacing and uh, enlivening things that wasn't really necessary to make the image in a lot of cases. It was a, it was a decorative or embellishing add-on. Um, I, I saw some of it as a kind of attempt to go back to where Eric Fischel was when he began to do allegories and to do it genuinely differently and to do it from a differently gendered position. Uh, and I, I'd be interested to see more utterly persuaded me, and there were little things that made me nervous. Un, un, having said that, there was a one show that I found on my way to this one, which I really liked, Two Doors Down, Jane Corrigan, um, who did, who did wonderfully painterly paintings of uh, girl athletes, basically, and uh, one of the best kisses I've seen in a long time in a painting. Uh, and it seemed to me her way of making the paint move and her discovery of imagery through moving the paint was so much less self-conscious and so much richer in connotation. So I, I wouldn't normally put the two of them against each other in a way to, to hurt one with the other, but I would say that Corrigan is doing something right away with this approach to painting, albeit with a different touch, and I hope that Dufresne gets there too. Um, well, little to add, I suppose uh, what hasn't been mentioned here, for those who haven't seen 
the show is how, and I guess this is my job on this panel, uh, how rife with allusions to other painters this show is. Um, she's not alone in doing that, needless to say, but this show really uh, does it quite a bit. Um, all the way back to Pompeii, I thought I noted. Um, uh, but Enzor is there. Um, there's the big painting in the show is, is very explicitly in its title a reference to uh, Courbet's real. I'll give you Courbet's title. Um, this is the, the painting of Courbet in his studio, and there's a model behind him, barely um, covered by a cloth, but he's painting a landscape. And Ren, speaking of networks, including Baudelaire. Um, and the title of Courbet's painting is Real Allegory, Interior of My Studio, Determining a Phase of Seven Years of My Artistic Life. Testament, and her title for her riff on this is A Real Allegory of My Artistic and Moral Life. And inside of that painting uh, are citations of paintings, actual painted paintings, um, one of which looked a lot like Constable to me. I'm sure other people saw other things. Um, also, and this is somewhat typical, you find it in John Curran and in others, there's a kind of love of the, uh, um, by all tasteful people, unloved moments in earlier painting. I, I discerned even references to kind of late 19th century society painting like Segantini, if you've ever heard of him. Um, at the same time as you've got all of this welter of references going on uh, through the paint and in the paint, it's in the handling, but it's also in what's being, the motifs being represented, you have these visions of a kind of um, wonderfully harmonious but vicious Arcadia. Um, uh, there's animals, there's nudity, although never, it's never prurient, the nudity. It is somewhat restrained, this show. But there's sort of kissing going on between animals and, um, and humans. There's severed heads. Um, and yet it all feels um, quite loving and pleasant. Yeah, I've, I got the feeling that it was almost um, a sort of pansexual peon, in, in a way. It, was, it wasn't... Uh, but at the same time, it's 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 um, it's 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 Freemasonry meets, or not Freemasonry, like witchcraft meets deliverance. You know, because it's, there, there did there did seem to be uh, a real uh, redneck, and this is where I think the connections between Kurland and um, uh, uh, Dufresne are, are really quite riveting. There did seem to be a, a similar sort of redneck energy Winter's permeating. Bone, that movie, Winter's Bone, with Jennifer Winter's Lawrence. Bro, right. Did you see that? Uh, I read the book, but I didn't, uh, oh, didn't see the movie yet. So yes. Reminding me of that. Yes, yes. Now maybe, so maybe there's an analogy to be drawn between the promiscuity of pictorial elusiveness, allusiveness, and uh, a kind of promiscuity of uh, human and bestial in in the content, and maybe that analogy is 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 mismatched at moments. Maybe that's partly related to those moments of nervousness that Rob 
um, <laughs> alluded to. to. I'm, yes. I'm not sure yes. what, what those were, but uh, that, that seemed to me possibly an area that could be um, tricky. I, I didn't know how to reconcile the two levels of promiscuity, if you will. Well, there's a sort of miscegenation between um, her and art history and the, the, the creatures and beings in, in her paintings. Is that, is that what yeah, you're alluding that, to? But to say it that way, and, and that is the way I said it more or less, doesn't sound like enough. Um, but um, I still think it's maybe I need to think it through a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, Rob, can you come back with this notion of miscegenation? Um, it's not a term I like very much, given its history. Right. Um, I mean, I, th I think she's at liberty to mix and match and to play these games. Um, this is also a situation just on the painterly side where I would recommend actually she try to make bigger paintings to go for broke in a kind of 19th century way, because I think the fussiness of her technique would go away if she actually had to make the big gesture and compel us to believe and look at something. So this is somebody I'm, I'm, I'm all for seeing grow, and I think, I hope anyway, that, 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 that she doesn't sort of settle into this, this mode and this scale uh, too much. I mean, she's, she's, she's pretty well mastered it within its limits. I think one thing one would just say as a, um, a sort of factual intervention is that, uh, and this happens with the review panel, you see an artist having a show and you're interested to go and look at that artist and that show. Um, she, she uh, Monnero used to be in Chelsea and when, when Monnero was in Chelsea, uh, her last show doubled up with uh, something at CRG Gallery. Uh, where we saw very big camps. She's an extremely prolific artist who does often work at a scale that I think would, would um, satisfy. No, it's not the scale just per se. It's not that I like big paintings or small paintings. Yeah. Just, I had a sense that her technique was not, you know, doing as much as it might, and maybe this would be the question. But I'll go look at the earlier ones, see what they are. Right, fantastic, cool. Um, let's, let's turn our attention now then to Justine Curland. And let me take a moment actually to acknowledge that the entering double digits, the review panel has come of age in one very key respect. We used to have a rigorously uh, enforced regulation uh, of my invention that uh, we didn't look at any artists on the review panel who'd ever been looked at on the review panel before. And it was my intention to subvert the rule next time and ended up actually in ignorance of my own archive subverting it twice this evening, uh, in that uh, Marcel uh, Zama was actually considered on the review panel by um, uh, uh, Barbara Pollack, Irving Sandler, and Daniel Kunitz back in 2005. And on the very first panel uh, here, uh, up upstairs as it happens in 2004, uh, Jerry Saltz, Maureen Mulaki, and Ken Johnson looked at and thought about Justine Kurland. So here we are, the eternal recurrence back again with Justine Curlin. But as with Marcel Zama, it's a very, or perhaps a fairly significantly different Curland we're looking at now. We've gone from the, uh, uh, what would have really gone with Angela Dufresne, uh, these uh, utopian uh, nudist communities out in the woods, to um, the, the grittier, more male, and uh, dystopian uh, view of, uh, uh, on the road, as it were. Um, Dor Dorothy, start us, off, start us off, if you would, on, on Justine Kurland. Was this a, a body of work that cohered for you? Did it have a narrative, did you feel? I, 
or was it a, a collection, a, a theme? I, I um, really did feel that it had a narrative, and I mean, I guess I should preface what I say by saying that I love road trips generally, and so art and books and stuff that's about road trips is, I, I feel like Justine Curlin's work, work um, I, I don't really like fantasy as much, and so it seems down to earth to me in a way that I like. So, and her road trips are, you know, there's, it, she get she takes glancing views. It's not like literally like sincere auto care. There's not literally a car in every image, and um, there were many things I liked about the show. I mean, the fact that it was horizontally presented and that there weren't too many works and it wasn't salon style. And I also really liked the quality of the paper that the printing was done on and the fact that the photographs weren't under glass. Um, I was saying to someone earlier today that I felt like it really made a case for seeing a show in person, as, uh, photographs in person, as opposed to seeing them online, because there's a physicality to the photographs and, you know, that sometimes is lacking. And I actually really loved this show, so. Great, thank you. Um, Alex? Um, I, I enjoyed the show a, a great deal um, and felt felt at once that it, it was um, part of a grand tradition of um, documentary photography, uh, a very American tradition, um, and the, I felt very ignorant of it. I felt like there were, there were whole rushing streams that I was probably missing, but that were just coming through here. Um, and, and I wondered about that very fact. She seemed completely unabashed about taking this approach to the material. Um, I thought, I did a little thought experiment. I thought, what would, what would it be like if an artist, uh, or uh, rather a painter, were to paint just directly in line with the tradition from the 40s and 50s now? Um, probably that would be either controversial or just ignored now. Um, but in photography, it seemed possible. Uh, this seemed very much alive. Um, I, I looked at every image and found something uh, interesting uh, to think about. Um, and my second thought about it was, perhaps she's making a statement about it. Maybe it's just the way she works as a photographer and that's that. But I thought maybe there was a statement in, uh, to do with the actual content. And that is that, yeah, the approach is pretty traditional here, and that's because things actually haven't changed that much out there. Um, things aren't moving very much out there. This is a whole thing about cars. Um, and so it seemed like a kind of, uh, a kind of slowness socially was being matched by um, an approach that she still thinks is relevant and turns out is relevant. Even the very theme of cars was a kind, I felt it was a statement, as if to say, well, you can talk about digital culture all you want and everything that's going on now, but for most people out there, it's the car. You gotta, you gotta make that car move. Um, a lot of the shots taken were of people in, or, or the kinds of things people use in situations on the brink of destitution. 
Okay. This is fascinating uh, to me, Alex, because um, I mean those, those are, are, are rich observations. But the the fact that that you read her in terms of um, say Walker Evans uh, yeah. or or um, WPA era photography is um, uh, a twist of um, fate or style or whatever it is because. Here, here we have one of the young, she was one of the young stars of what was called the Yale School um, yeah. of, of the, these photographers best known for sort of very, very big photographs, usually of uh, sad women in ugly rooms or, or uh, um, in fact, we've, we've done proud of that tradition. We've, we've looked on this, sorry to sound like an old fart going on and on about the history of the review panel, but we've looked at Kathy, Katie, Kathy Grannon, we've looked at uh, Mallory Marler, and here we are for a second time looking at uh, Justine Culland. I hope Yale is going to sort of put us in its yearbook or something, uh, Dean Store, because look what, what justice we've done to them. But what a turn of fate that somebody who's uh, Gregory Crudson's student who did those big photographs of uh, utopian communities staged, um, uh, or seemingly staged, um, uh, photographs has now come round to seem like a, a sort of latter-day Walker Evans. Well, <laughs> I am in a compromised position to respond to that question or even to respond to this work. So uh, let me just say up front, I was not that impressed by these pictures, although they had all the qualities that well-trained Yale students have. They call serious pictures. They're, they have all the virtues except um, real vitality, I guess. And in the spaces where one would find real vitality, one then begins to ask the questions of whether or not these are in fact fictional pictures, and whether that lack of vitality is part of a strategy of alienating the viewer from the tradition of Walker documentary tradition, and whether the art isn't in fact a kind of Duchampian play with the idea of you are there photography. Uh, the photograph of the two men, where there's one underneath the car and another one leaning on the hood, looks utterly staged. Now, I don't know whether it was or not, but the fact that it, you ask those questions is really to say the consequences of what Greg has done and of what other people have done with the theatricalization of the documentary tradition and the fact that there are people trying to continue that documentary tradition has now put viewers in a quandary and it's very, very hard to uh, it, it's not a question of fairness to the photographer or subject. You really just don't know anymore. And all of the literature about uh, the simulacrum and so on and so forth doesn't help you very much either. Um, and I ultimately came away from the show saying a very interesting, very professional uh, performance but not a very interesting group of photography. And again, I'm gonna run a risk of crossing wires here, but uh, there's a person who teaches at Yale, uh, Lisa Carezzi, who did a marvelous book about her father's junkyard. And by the way, I don't drive at all, but I am not from another place in this world. I'm from the Midwest, so I'm quite familiar with junkyards and the smell of them and things like that. Uh, and I think Lisa's book on her father's junkyard is an extraordinary document. Um, and I think it shows exactly how rich the traditions are and how much, how actual that subject matter can be. So I would look at this, and it's also, of course, the work of a woman about this predominantly male culture, not exclusively so. In any case, I think this is good photography, and I think it should be much better photography. Um, j just to um, respond a little bit to that and, in a way, second it, 
the the effect of this the state the staged effect was I thought too very strong. There were moments that looked like Jeff Wall, but I was told by people who know much more than me that she's really belongs to the I'm not bluffing school of straight photography, um, and and that effect was enhanced uh, further. I thought by the the way the photographs were printed. Something about the inkjet printing gave to certain passages really a kind of pictorial effect. There were, there were moments where it felt like this couldn't be a photograph. It's too, the surface is too kind of uh, painterly. Too lush, yes, but the, her, her compositions are extraordinarily painterly. That's, uh, that's a striking feature of her. And, and therefore, I think it's almost, it's almost as if Kurland is, a, is, a, is an instance of... Uh, uh, nature imitating art because uh, she she goes out and documents things she finds that look like some uh, a, Greg, a student of Gregory Crudson has carefully staged them with uh, a whole production crew and it, it apparently it's not it's just her and her son going around um, photographing well the son is a boy a baby but um, a kid um, but um, but not a boy soprano uh, so so she's uh, but it's so, in other words, there's, there is, as, as, as Rob is saying, we're left in a quandary. We're left to not quite know where we stand in relation to these genres and practices and strategies because um, it, it's the, both the, 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 the heavily composed and standing back from its own artifice to insist on a kind of naturalism. That's what let's, I mean, that's conceptually potentially a very interesting uh, tense tension to explore. But I, I must say, I found them, I, I found that ambivalence rather than ambiguity between the documentary and the, the composed to, to actually ultimately debilitate the works. I, I, uh, I, I think there's an irony here that's really interesting um, because the Walker Evans approach, and correct me if I'm wrong, I may well be wrong, but as I understand it, was actually, there was a kind of political sympathy but in fact, it's quite distanced photography. Whereas here, as I understand it, she really hangs out with these people. Um, uh, there, there's a previous project where she basically uh, traveled with her kid for two years, uh, homelessly, um, and did, did, a, did a whole documentation of that. So she believes in really inhabiting these cultures and, and one feels in the images a lot of affect uh, the affect of people for their cars is very evident, but also her affect, I think, is very evident. And yet, it's true. There's this kind of feeling of an inevitable distance that's there, and that's to do with the kind of sedimentation of, of this, this very tradition, decade after decade, that she is, um, that she's the, you know, heir of. Um, it's unavoidable, it seems. Which also brings up the question of whether the, what Viktor Shklovsky called the, the alienation effect is possible now. Because there, is, there are those things which never achieve connection and there are those things which are consciously alienated and we're now caught in the, in the whiplash between the two. I, I, for one, believe that Evans was not political at all. He was utterly formalistic about that, and that is one of the reasons his pictures are so great. Um, not that I'm a formalist by conviction, but in his particular case, the refusal of obvious empathy and the, the, the emphasis on how the picture gets made and seen uh, allows you to do all the looking you want without having a predisposed program or a predetermined program. Uh, and I, I'm all for that. I think 
her empathy is admirable humanly, but it doesn't come through in the pictures. I guess I'm the only one. <laughs> I feel like maybe I'm gullible or something compared to everyone else here on the panel tonight on this subject because I, I, I felt like I entered into the pictures and engaged with them emotionally. They didn't seem alienating me to me. me and so I was amazed by the combination of having that feeling and then having the composition be so beautiful or the richness of the reds and there's like a red car or something that's just so the color um, and the way that they're cropped also I just thought like wow if you can take a picture like that and do that while you're living a moment I mean which it seems that she does at the same time I don't know maybe that's like a female thing to do too like it's sort of multitasking <laughs> <laughs> I quiver with uh, uh, nervousness about contradicting that, although it has a little essentialist edge to it, Dorothy. But we're not in Kansas, Dorothy. Um, and I won't surrender. Okay. Let us ask our audience to share their views on the last two shows, Dufresne and Curland, and we can mix it up. So... Um, uh, be, be very interested to hear on either or even, or perhaps indeed connections uh, between the two. Uh, there's a hand behind you, uh, Karen. I wanted to say um, my, my impression of the um, painting show, uh, I was um, interested and um, critical of a, um, an awkward... Um, dichotomy between their loose handling and a kind of rigidity that they had. I found them to rigidity. be rigidity. Yeah, I found the um, there was a sort of an emphasis on the on the hard edge, which was surprising bet between the figures, edges of the figures, and the and the spatial areas, which was surprising, despite the sort of. Um, a kind of a presentation of a loose hand, and 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 not just the edges. It was in fact the the uh, structure. I found them very, very rigid, and so there it was this strange combination of um, disorienting combination between that um, the this sort of um, kind of bravado of the uh, loose touch, but a, but a rigidity there, both structurally and uh, across the lateral surface. Right. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, astute technical critique. Yes. Others on, on either of the artists? Uh, yes, Svetlana. I just want to say I agree, Rob, completely that um, this is about the Curland indirectly, that um, Evans was not political, but he, his photographs are radical. In other words, there is a making strange of what he sees in the world, and that's connected to a way in which he saw America and America's history. So though it's not political, it is in that way addressing the situation of someone living at his time, looking back and forward. And it does give you, and I saw nothing in Curlin's photographs that suggested what view she had of this at all, 
of this world of which she was looking at. And that's so clear and powerful in Evans. No, it's not political, but there is a kind of radicalness of looking that's basic to his photographic practice, I would say. Right. Uh, yes. Hi. Um, it was interesting to me that in regards to Curlin's uh, show, the question of whether the pictures were staged or not uh, came up. It seems to me that you know no one questions if the painting was staged, and you know she is, as was mentioned, a student of Crutzen and, and the Corsia. And you know, in, in an age where in photography, especially uh, people are very focused on the materiality and the relationship with digital media and whatnot, um, that she is sort of taking a stance on that there is value in continuing a tradition of photography in a way. And, but also I felt that she also makes it very much her own. So I guess I really liked it. <laughs> Thank you, yeah. Yes, towards the front. Um, I want to go back to something that uh, Alexander said right at the beginning of the discussion here, uh, which was uh, you made a distinction between selfish viewing versus critical viewing. Uh, and I am curious if any of you have anything more to add about that and whether it's possible for one viewer to be both simultaneously in turn or whatever. Yeah, that's a very broad and um, philosophical question, but an, an, an excellent one. Um, uh, yeah, Alex, Alex uh, drew a distinction between <coughs> the work selfishly, getting his pleasures from it, and um, uh, critically. But I, I, I was feeling actually, Alex, that your use of critical this evening has meant rather negative or harsh or just but because in fact all your comments have been critical uh, in the sense of having astuteness and being informed and uh, and making us think harder so let me tell you let me just say that art critical thinks that art news was wrong that you're a, a, a very fine critic great great to have you here uh, but uh, um, that's a, nonetheless a, fasc a, a fascinating question and it sometimes happens that the art the review panel ends on a philosophical note. So let's have a minute or so each. Can one, um, can one just split oneself in half when one goes to a gallery between that selfish part that's having fun or not and that critical part that's uh, doing a serious job of work? Uh, I, I, guess, I guess I understand the distinction differently. When I said selfish, it, it, it's sometimes fun. Uh, but it's not about it being fun. It's about what thoughts I can derive from it. What, what, what use I can put this to also. Um, uh, it's a kind of working with the material for my own ends. Um, it's not necessarily fun. And, and on the critical side, I definitely didn't understand critical as negative. I just, I just was saying, but it was a very restricted definition of critical, which is evaluative. I wasn't going to do evaluative criticism. Um, but I, I, do, I, I do believe in an analysis, um, trying to analyze what the, what the problems are. Yeah. But not comparisons of quality necessarily. Yeah, I, I don't feel in a position to do that. With, or I, I just didn't want to do that, really, with this work. Dorothy, and your experience in general, or in particular of the four shows we've looked at uh, this evening, did you, do you, are there moments that you find when there's, there's the, the Dorothy that loves, is interested in flight, takes an interest, and it's not going to be influencing your critical view of the matter? 
Um, I guess I feel like when I go to shows, I, I mean, I, I'm coming from a journalism background, so I, I feel pretty receptive to whatever anyone has to say, and I'm more almost interested in what they're trying to do than and observing that as clearly as I can. Um, I guess that's why the Alora and Calzadilla show bothered me, because there were so many people that it, I couldn't really connect with the work. So um, I, I feel um, that just observing is the most important thing to me. And um, being, I mean, it, whether it's conceptual work or a purely visual experience, I mean, it, it, that is coming from the artist more, and it's more about what what they want to show me. Mm -hmm. Right. So Rob, you wear so many hats as, as educator, as maker, as critic, as curator, as uh, perhaps even collector. Um, do you find yourself uh, in a sort of schizophrenic um, um, flannerial experience when you're going around the galleries, or do, you, do it, is it actually a unified field? According to French theory, we're all schizophrenic all the time. So, um, I don't know. Um, no, I mean, I, I I look at a lot of art that doesn't impress me one way or the other, but that I can extract something from that is of use to me. And I think in the way that Alex is talking about, um, but if art begins to make demands on me, then I begin to make demands on it. And then I become a card-carrying Baudelarian. I think the criticism is, as he said, passionate, political, and partisan. And I don't think you can do criticism on the sort of let's get along to go along kind of basis. And I'm not saying that's what you say, but I'm just saying once you cross that threshold, once, once somebody demands my attention, they're going to get it, and they're going to get it in those terms. And I think, unfortunately, a great deal of art that's being made now simply wants my tolerance, my suspension of skepticism to a point that I find quite annoying. And uh, I think that's kind of the issue in many cases. I mean, I, I am very ready to entertain contradictory ideas. I'm very willing to give the benefit of the doubt to work that is in the process of becoming. But at a certain uh, threshold, you're playing for keeps. And if people don't play that way, then I lose interest in them. And if they really nudge me, then I will say something back. Right. Well, I think it just remains for me, uh, besides thanking the panelists, also to do that um, it's uh, a Jewish holiday has just finished, and I, something my rabbi always used to do, a little shout-out. I'd like to do a shout-out for the fact that uh, it's always touching and gratifying to see both uh, past and future panelists in the audience with us. Uh, my associate editor at Art Critical, Noah Dillon, is, uh, is, is, is with us. Alexi Wirth and Svetlana Alpers, who are uh, Alpers, who have both been uh, uh, distinguished panelists in the past, are here, and so too Irving Sandler. And um, uh, I share with Rob a desire to end with a, a plug and just say, if you haven't seen it already, uh, make sure you do get uh, before gallery and see Irving's exhibition, Irving Sandler, out of 10th Street into the 60s. Uh, a rather remarkable uh, and and streamlined. Um, and, and, and striking installation. So, uh, see you all for the 10th anniversary special. And by the way, this is, won't be printed anywhere, but uh, uh, join us for a little tipple afterwards if you come on October the 24th. And may I add just this much? And, uh, sorry? May I add just this much? Yes. Four out of the eight artists in Irving's show are with us now, so they are also artists of the 21st century. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much.